Hello and welcome to the We Are Habs podcast, the show that lifts the lid on some of the old girls and boys who, after leaving haberdashers, have made their mark on the world. I'm Elliot Godkin, Meadows 87 to 94. I'm a journalist, master of ceremonies and host of the FinTech podcast. And today I want to talk to you about the weather because Brits love talking about the weather, but there's one former Habs girl who probably does it better than anyone else in the country. She's the chief executive of the Met Office, the UK's National Weather Service, a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, a visiting professor in the Electronics and Computer Science Faculty at Southampton University, and an expert in armour and explosives. Penny Endersby, welcome to the We Are Habs podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. And how are things where you are now? Uh, yeah, quite peaceful. We've just got back from COP26 where the Met Office had a big team. So that's been a huge effort and it, it feels relatively calm and relaxed here. It's, it's a quiet weather week, um, so that, that's always good and um, feels almost normal because we've got a good number of people back in the office. So that's also a great pleasure. So I would say that things are tickety-boo. Lovely. Well, I want to come back to, uh, COP, uh, to the COP summit in just a few minutes. Um, you've got a, a number of strings to your bow, of course, but, but I guess the Met Office is your uh, main role, or at least the one you're, you're best known for right now. What does being chief executive of the Met Office entail? Well, it's very much a dual role, Elliot, because and I, I, when I was selected for the role, it was like this. There's a, there's a strong scientific element of representing our science as a, as a credible expert. But it's also a big business that turns over a quarter of a billion and has 2,000 staff. Um, so there's the, the element of, of running a, an arm's length body of government as, a, as an efficient business to get value for the taxpayer as well. So that's kind of that, that twin track is, is what my, my job is to do. Okay. Now, now, when I was studying geography A-level at uh, Habs and at university, actually, uh, we dabbled a little bit in meteorology. And even then, I remember being taught that one way to forecast the weather for tomorrow is just to see what it's, it's doing today. Like that was like one of the best ways of, of forecasting. I, I'm guessing that now with the computing power available um, and uh, artificial intelligence and the like, we're much better at predicting weather patterns much further in advance. So how, how, how accurate can we be now about weather forecasting? So that's a great example. What you what you describe, we call persistence. And it's the baseline for are we any good at all? So we, we measure how successful we are. And yeah, it's just saying it's going to be the same as it was yesterday. It's actually right about 60% of the time in the UK. So it's not it's better than random. Um, we are much, much more accurate than that. Uh, so our one day forecast is, yeah, it, it depends exactly what metrics you measure. And we measure a whole basket of things all over the country to, to prove to ourselves how accurate we are. But it, it's right better than 90% of the time. Weather forecasting gets better at about a day, a decade. So back when you and I were at school in the 80s, um, the sort of the four day forecast then, um, or the one day forecast then would have been about as good as our four day forecast is now. Um, and a lot of that's come through the applications of huge amounts of supercomputing power uh, because we run a really complicated model on a very fine grid, taking little time steps. We start with the atmospheric conditions now and then project them forward. And the, the finer you can make that grid, the more power you need and the more accurate your forecasts are. Wonderful. Uh, and of course, we can't talk about the weather without discussing uh, climate change. As you mentioned, uh, you recently attended uh, Global Climate Talks in Glasgow. Um, did you return feeling optimistic that the world is going to do whatever it takes to save the planet or a bit despondent that some governments perhaps still don't get it or are still not willing to do uh, what needs to be done? 
somewhere in the middle, I think, in common with a, with a, with a lot of commentators. So I did feel that Glasgow made real substantive progress on, on, a, on a number of aspects. Um, so there were real commitments to reduce um, methane emissions, to get a grip on deforestation. There were improved pledges about um, carbon, fossil fuels did get a mention, coal got a mention. Was it enough to keep 1.5 degrees? Not yet. Uh, for me, one of the most, the most important things was that they increased the frequency of future pledges from um, five yearly to annually because we really are in the critical decade now. If we waited another five years with the pledges we've got um, from some of the large emitters, it would be too late. Uh, but by bringing people back to the table every year with more, there's still a chance we can do it. So I think like a lot of people, not as good as we would have liked, but a lot better than it might have been, and probably as much progress as any COP has ever made. Um, it's a tough business getting 200 nations to agree on something that costs them all money. Um, and obviously with that, there's their funding for the poorer nations as well, both to um, reduce their own emissions and to deal with the climate change that's already hitting them and the impacts of that. Right. And of course, um, you're, you're the first woman to hold the role of uh, chief executive of the Met Office. Uh, did that for you perhaps make the appointment um, all the more meaningful? Because I know you're a big supporter of diversity and inclusion, obviously across government and science and, and, and business as a whole. I think it, it did a little bit. I didn't realise it in, until other people pointed it out to me when I was appointed. I, I was a little bit proud to have dealt with my own little bit of glass ceiling. But I think it's much more important to be a good CEO of the Met Office than, than your gender or anything else. So that was where my, my mind was focused. Um, I've spent, I guess, my whole life, my working life, trying to do more to improve gender equality in science subjects. And increasingly now, you know, we're really working on the whole range of, of diversity um, and not just the obvious things like race and sexuality and gender, but also cognitive diversity and social background and all of that to, to make sure that you call on all the talents that you can and you don't fall into groupthink, particularly important if you're trying to do anything innovative. And is that something you've uh, made progress with or you've implemented certain, you know, perhaps policies inside the Met Office to make that happen? Yeah, in fact, we've just got ourselves the Investors in Diversity Award, which we're very pleased with, and has replaced our previous Athena Swan Award, which was, only, was gender only, which the Met Office already held when I came. And we've, we've done that with a whole equality, diversity and inclusion strategy um, and much refreshed staff networks that are sponsored by members of the executive. Um, our weakest area down in Devon here, it's quite a white area. And our weakest area is actually ethnic diversity. And so I sponsor our BAME network myself um, to try to bring that, that extra clout, clout and, um, and, and empowerment uh, to improve our record there. Okay. And of course, you've also got a distinguished career in the UK's Ministry of Defence, and you're something of an expert in armour and explosives. Uh, are you able to share uh, with us some of the things that you did there? So that's where I started. I did a very, I was sponsored by British Gas through my degree. I did a short while with them. But 18 months into my career, I went to work for the Ministry of Defence and I was there for 25 years. So I worked my way up from a scientific officer to the board of the Defence Arts and Technology Laboratory. But the first 10 of those years, yes, I was an armour expert. I was de designing armour for tanks. I was firing the shots myself, so um, firing uh, bombs and uh, cannons, um, to conducting explosive trials. And um, I was particularly into actually the really novel end, sort of electrically powered and intelligent armors. Um, so it was quite high tech and quite far off delivery um, stuff. Uh, but it was a, a great research discipline to work in. 
um, lots of effort. It's a very expensive business blowing stuff up. Um, and so you have to be very, very careful with your trail design and your data collection to get the absolute most information you can out of never enough experiments. It sounds like you were maybe designing Iron Man kind of stuff, which may be of interest to uh, Rishar, who's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was on our first uh, We Are Habs podcast. Is this the kind of stuff you were, were researching and looking into? So we were researching um, quite a lot of tanks. Israeli tanks definitely are coated in explosive, explosive reactive armour. Um, it's got a couple of disadvantages. It's a bit dangerous and expensive to store. Um, and also when you've hit it, it, explo- it explodes and then it isn't there anymore. Um, so we were looking at replacing that explosive with high power electricity, so a different energy source, which would then be reusable and you could reload your capacity banks and your armour would be back there for you again. That was one of the things. And the other was, it was right on the cutting edge of what could be done at the time, um, armors that would respond differentially according to what came in, so you didn't waste your charge on a bullet, which the tank could cope with perfectly well on its own and saved it for a big um, anti-tank weapon. Uh, and because armor events are all over in 100 microseconds or so, the, the compute power was really at the limit of what was capable of being done then. I think if I went back to it now, there'd be loads of time. Um, but computers get faster all the time and they do in armor as well as in, as, as well as in meteorology. Um, and, and you can, you, you try things when they're first possible. So you're always sort of pushing the boundaries of what can really be done with the technology that's at hand if you're a researcher. And when you're kind of like firing off these tank, tank shells, I mean, you're, you're actually, you know, putting the trigger, pressing the button it must've been quite therapeutic in a way, I would imagine. Yes, I, I took the job. I, I was, um, I married very young, married straight out of college. And um, my British gas job was moving and either my husband or I needed to find a new job. And I answered an ad in the Telegraph to go and work in defence. But I didn't really want to work in defence and I didn't want to be an armour researcher. And they, they brought me in between the interview um, and taking up the job before I accepted the offer to give firing one shot a go. And I was very nervous about it and I pushed the button and it made a big bang. And I thought, oh, I could get used to it. <laughs> Um, so it was in some ways, it was quite therapeutic and it was all, it was all very, very safe and um, you, know, you were very remote from it because if you were designing um, a trial, you've got all the time in the world to set it up safely. And even in those days when health and safety at work wasn't as advanced as it is now, there were pretty rigorous, um, pretty rigorous procedures around explosive trials. Right. You had to pass a test like a driving test. And was tinkering around with, uh, I don't know, chemicals and, and the like in the labs at Habs, was that something that maybe set you on this path? Well, I would, I'd say it certainly was. I, I, I'm certainly indebted to Habs to, for a very high quality of science teaching um, all the way through uh, and um, for being very good at getting girls into science at a time when they maybe were not. Um, not so much engineering. I would say Habs didn't have a clue that most, nearly all of the girls in my class were going off to be medics. Um, I think there was one electronics engineer, one aeronautical engineer and me, uh, and everybody else was going to be some form of doctor. Um, But it didn't matter because it gave you the opportunity to keep your options open. And I really went up to university thinking I wanted to do theoretical chemistry and the maths in that turned out to be a bit of a stretch. Uh, But also I think my instincts are more applied. I like to see science turn into real benefit to people. And um, that's... The, the direction my career has taken me is very much in the applied science and, and meteorology and the Met Office is a great example of that. Um, and that was not something we really thought about much at school. So that was a path I had to find for myself. But it perhaps gave me the wherewithal that I could do that.
Right, and I think you also won um, uh, awards as well. You won the, the Mackenzie Memorial Prize for Science in. Uh, I did. Yes, I've still got I've still got the books with the stickers in somewhere, um, and I got a wise sponsorship in my sixth form to go and work in the GC Hurst Research Laboratories in Wembley as well, and that was my my first experience of doing research, um, and first time I sort of handled something that nobody else in the world had seen, and I did find that very exciting. And, and probably helped push me in that direction too. So it, I, I'm a wise ambassador now, and it's, it is something I'm very happy to give back um, because I do think that they were quite influential on um, the, the path I took. Right. I mean, I have to ask, uh, Penny, I, mean, I was terrible at practical chemistry. I think in my A-level chemistry, I got an E in the practical and an A overall. So I must have done something well in the theory. But I'm just wondering, when you were in the labs, were there any kind of... Uh, Accidental explosions? Were you, did you have any running with Bunsen burners? Did you get into trouble for any bad experiments that you might have uh, done? Not, not that I remember, which is odd, because I'm actually quite a clumsy person. Um, so I'm surprised I didn't spill more things than I did. I, I can remember I did a little bit of paid lab tech work in the sixth form when they were a lab technician down and they, they got some sixth formers to fill in for some pocket money. And I do remember being a bit eager, tipping some sodium hydroxide into a solution. And it was in a fume cupboard, getting a kind of puff of um, a, a lungful and thinking I probably should have switched the fume cupboard on or something. Um, but but mostly, mostly not so much. And I mean, even when I got to Cambridge, I did notice just how well taught we'd been with some of the complicated things like titrations, that some of the other students didn't have the same grounding. So it, it was a very good teaching. Right. And I think you left Habs in 1988, which is actually a year after I joined. Um, when you were there, did, did you really, I mean, you talked about the, the, the quality of the science education. In terms of, I guess, uh, achievements and, and leadership, did, did you, was it kind of drummed into you that you really could achieve anything if you, if you put your mind to it? I don't think it was. I think leadership in particular was almost never mentioned um, and not it wasn't something we were given role models for academic achievement absolutely and a lot of other things were very competitive so um, I'm not at all sporty I said I was quite a clumsy person and there wasn't much encouragement to do sport for your own physical well-being it was about could you be on the team which I couldn't so that was something I had to figure out later in life um, so I, I, and sort of talking about leadership is something women might want to do not at all and even in my daughter's grammar school still not really really quite disappointing um and it is something that socially i don't think we encourage women to do very much and it's something that you if you if you have natural tendencies that way they get stamped out of you and you have to resurrect them again later right so, so if, it, if it didn't really prepare you for for, for leadership i mean was there was there also kind of a sense of um you know that, that failure might happen occasionally and that 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 I don't know, giving you the tools to be able to pick pick yourself up or learn learn from those failings to, to kind of go on to, to bigger and better things in future? Again, no, it was all about celebrating. They're very good at celebrating success, um, very good at encouraging you to try different things and obviously it provided a real richness of things. So I got, I got in, engaged with the music and the singing and that's something that stood me in good stead all my life. It's funny you should mention the failure. I, I remember um, in our sort of, what would have been now PSHE, but our sort of religious education in the, when I was about 16, we had a, a teacher who was also a priest, and he, he suddenly surprised us by saying, girls in this school will talk about anything, but they won't talk about failure. 
and I've never found a, I've never found a class that will, and they all shut up as soon as it's mentioned. So yeah, they talk about abortion or drugs or sexuality, but failure was a taboo topic. And again, sort of learning learning how to fail and to learn from that and to pick yourself up and carry on was something I think that came to me later. I tended at school to try something and carry on with it if I was good at it and stop it if I wasn't. Right. And you mentioned that, that one thing you were successful at was, was singing. You were a keen singer. Um, uh, perhaps you, I, I think you've got a few achievements there, a, a grade seven singing in uh, 88 and um, could, solo. Could I tell you that? <laughs> how, on earth, how on earth do you? Yes, I did. So I had singing lessons at school, but actually for me, I'm a real choral singer. And that's what the school gave me. So I went on from school to sing in Cambridge Chapel choirs. Uh, I sing with the voluntary choir of Exeter Cathedral now, and I've, I've sung in good small chamber choirs all my life. And that's something I'm forever indebted to the school for because yeah, those hundreds of hours I did singing at school and then carried on gave me a skill that gives me huge pleasure and, and joy. Um, and I sang... Um, I sang with the St Catherine Singers, which is the chamber choir in the girls' school, but also with the Ask Singers that was founded when I was there. I don't know if it still exists, but it was joined between the girls and boys. And you can get enough of all upper voice music if, <laughs> if you're a musician. I'd certainly had enough of that by the time I'd left school. I was glad to do more four-part stuff. Right. And so when, when people walk past your office at the Met office, uh, do, do, do they ever kind of hear, you know, kind of choral singing coming emanating from uh, from the so, so when you say your office so the, the mess office has a choir with which i do sing just had my first rehearsal after a long covid gap this week if you mean my office met office is very egalitarian i don't even have a desk um i sit with my team in an open plan in an area where we where we share the desks um haven't had didn't have a desk for the last bit of dstl so no grand corner office with the board table and a a dragon outside to stop people getting to me. That that all went a long time ago. Okay. Well, I, I think I guess this is all coming from the archivists at uh, at the girls' school because they uh, must have. I'm right. sure I never mentioned grade seven singing. <laughs> good, some good record keeping there. Well, yeah, but you were you were a soloist for the senior choir performance of Stabat Mater by Pergolet Pergolet. Yes. That was indeed. Uh, well, well, we had in a previous podcast, we had uh, Vanessa Feltz and her family um, singing, I think, the girls' school anthem. Can, can you remember any of the lines? Can you give us a little rendition? Excellent. But this could be a new thing. We'll have to have like a kind of part of this podcast where where we invite old Habs boys and girls to sing something. Um, but uh, the other thing I'm told is that you're a bit of a, a general knowledge buff as well. Can you tell me about that, your um, general knowledge so skills I at Habs? I did take part and enjoyed very much in the school general knowledge quiz. And again, I'm, I'm awestruck by the archivism because I haven't thought about that for decades, literally decades. It isn't something I went on with, although I do do quizzes for fun. My husband and I make a, a killer quiz team because he's a medieval historian and a politics teacher. And he knows a com the completely the, the sort of complementary set of stuff to me. Um, so I'm quite a good quizzer on my own, but with him, we're almost unbeatable. Um, <laughs> Teamwork. So, so because yeah. I, I see that you, you compete in the National Junior and Senior General Knowledge Challenges as well. I did, but it, unlike the singing, it isn't something I went on with um, sort of competitively after school. But quizzes come up, um, so there have been some extra cathedral ones I've, I've been in the team on. Um, yeah, but they were just big fun things. I've not... Um, can you remember which uh, which rival school you beat uh, and then which one you lost to afterwards? 
No, I, I, I can't. So, I, I really can't. I did some of the Maths Olympiads too, but those were much more scary. Well, apparently you beat Merchant Taylor's 570 to 550 and then lost to Royal Grammar School High Wycombe um, in the next round. So um, I, I, I'll take it from you. <laughs> but, but overall, I guess, is it fair to assume that you were a good, you were a good student? You weren't, you know, one of the naughty girls at Old Habs? Uh, no, I, w I was a swatty klutz. Um, so I, I was, yes, I was a, got quite studious and certainly not interested in, in making trouble. And uh, I mean, you're at the Med Office now. I know you have, and you're at the University of Southampton. I know you do a, a number of things at the same time. Do you, what, what's your, I guess you've achieved so much now, but, uh, you know, do you still have, what, what more ambitions do you have? Do you have a particular plan or, or, or desire to kind of uh, reach certain other milestones that you can share? I've never really had a life plan. I didn't set up, set myself up to do this. Um, I'm quite brave about taking opportunities when they come, even if they're scary and outside my comfort zone. And I've been blessed with some fantastic mentors and line managers who've sort of encouraged me to push myself as well. So I, the Met Office has got a vast new supercomputer inbound um, that will transform our capabilities. And I want to see that into operation and see the benefits from that. If I stayed at the Met Office till I retired, I'd, be, I'd been here 12 years, and that's probably too long for a chief executive. Um, you need, well, however good you are, somebody else's best bits are going to be in a different area, so the organisation will need to change. And no, I don't know what I'm going to do next at all. Um, I'll, I'll wait for the opportunity to come. I, um, I have looked at uh, some of the chief scientific advisor roles in government. Um, there's several of those that I might do, um, or I might look for something more like a portfolio career after this. This is such a great job, it's hard to think of anything I could enjoy more. Of course. Um, and I mean, I'm sure there are lots of uh, current Habs boys and girls who are listening or watching uh, this podcast. Um, what advice would you give to them in terms of uh, succeeding perhaps in the sciences um, or in engineering or or, or other subjects that perhaps, uh, well, particularly uh, perhaps girls, as you were saying, weren't necessarily encouraged uh, to do. What, what advice would you give them to try to, you know, really make a mark in, in those fields? I think it depends at the stage of your career. If you're still early enough to be choosing subjects, you'll never have too much maths or too much coding. Um, and I regret not having done the further maths um, and coding was still quite a niche um, activity at the point when I was studying. Apart from that, I would say do what you enjoy and be prepared to try um, things things that are new and difficult. Uh, and you know, I, I'm a hard worker, but mostly I think I've been prepared to put myself out there and do things that I don't feel entirely confident for and, and learn and get better and be prepared to risk failing occasionally. Um, so those would be the, the things I would say. And find yourself a good mentor if you can, because they're above the rubies. Okay, uh, are you volunteering perhaps? I do plenty of mentoring, believe me, um, but probably not to school age these days. Okay. Um, there's plenty of STEM outreach the Met Office does that would um, be more and more appropriate for um, children who are interested in, in the mid right. me meteorologist career. Okay, uh, well look Penny, this is the, the, the kind of uh, section which I ask all guests on the uh, We Are Hubs podcast. So some of them are just one word answers. Some of them are a bit more uh, detailed. So perhaps you can, uh, I call this the big asks. Uh, so uh, what year did you leave the school? 1988. And did you enjoy your time there? It got better. I wasn't very happy in the first few years. I certainly enjoyed the sixth form. 
And who was uh, the uh, head of the school when you were at Habs? It was Mrs Wiltshire. And who were your favourite teachers and what did they teach? Um, I several teachers I was very fond of. I think my A-level maths and physics teachers, so Mr Thacker and Mrs Mitchell, um, were great. And I would also um, single out maybe my French teacher, Mrs Baldwin. I did, I did French early and then O-level French early and then did AO. And then I went on and did A-level for fun in a year at a college after I graduated. Um, but those were those were all teachers that were really inspiring and, and went above and beyond just cramming you for what the exam was going to be. And um, I think you mentioned that uh, when you were in the asks, uh, Ask Singers, you were uh, kind of interacting with uh, students at the other school. Uh, was there much interaction beyond that? I would say the musicians were the only ones I really had friendships with. Um, obviously, if I'd done more of the sport or things, I might, might have come across it there. And I rode in, in and out on the coaches, so those were mixed. Um, but, you know, the Ask Singers, I'm still in contact with some of those. And indeed, Richard Brett, who founded it, um, and is a, now a, a lay clerk or a deputy lay clerk at Winchester Cathedral, I've run across a few times when I was singing and living in Salisbury as well. Uh, and which coach were you on? Oh, it came, well, it came from the Kenton area. Okay. Kenton and Kingsbury. <laughs> And, uh, I was coach steward in the big storm in 1987. Oh, wow. Okay, I remember that. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I guess we all remember Would that. Would it have been your first year, yes? Yeah, so. uh, yeah, I remember. Um, Just after you started. Yeah, it's a good way to, uh, to start. Um, and have you kept in touch with uh, many of your old schoolmates? I'm still in touch with about three girls, from two from my year and one from the year below. Um, one, one, onco one oncologist, one specialist in... Um, in uh, addiction medicine and one electronic engineer. Okay, well, that, so tallies, that tallies, I guess, with all of your friends that went off to do medicine and, and uh, not many of them going off to do engineering. Uh, and do you have any um, other recent uh, accomplishments that uh, you'd like to mention? I suppose I would like just to reflect a little bit on COP26, because even when I was there, I was thinking, I think this might be the most worthwhile thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, it, you know, climate change is such an existential challenge to the whole of humanity that being in the space with the people who are making the decisions and trying to bring that scientific evidence to them both both about what's causing it but also about the impacts of the choices they make um that really is something that feels very impactful and worthwhile doing right yeah i guess so many people say that they want to make the world a better place whether it's with their startups or with their businesses and i guess when you're actually there speaking with people who can literally make the world a better place um, by, you know, curtailing climate uh, climate change. Um, obviously, that is, I guess, I guess it's hard to beat. Um, but uh, but Penny, look, it's been a real pleasure uh, speaking with you. Um, really fascinating insights about your time at Habs and, of course, uh, your career. Um, so Penny Endersby, Met Office uh, Chief Executive, Professor, Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and Habs Girl. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on the We Are Habs podcast. Thank you. And thanks for having me. And if anyone listening or watching uh, would like to have more information about our guests or the school, please visit www.habsgirls.org.uk or habsboys.org.uk. Uh, or if you want to know more about me, that's uh, gotkin.com. And you can also follow us on your favourite social media at Habs or at Elliot Gotkin or eGotkin. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another uh, celebrated old haberdasher. We do hope you'll all be able to join us again then. For now, 